tonight looking out at you, I'm just reminded of impermanence, of change, the changing face of life at the forest refuge. You know, it was only a few nights ago and um, there was more people in the hall. Sayadaw Ulakana was here. We were blessed with his presence. Many of you had been practicing together for a period of time and then change happened. Uh, people disappeared. New people came in. And this is just all a part of life at the Forest Refuge. Um, one yogi once described how he felt like people just spontaneously appeared and disappeared. And you know, at these times, we really get to see how we are with impermanence, how we are with change. And just to work with being steady. Uh, you know, yes, it's different. Yes, different mind states might be coming up. Maybe even your practice has shifted in some way. But just keep turning up, being steady moment by moment. And tonight, I wanted to speak about finding true refuge. I think this is something that's very important for all of us. And we may have different understandings of what it is. You know, tonight we began with the chant of the refuges. You know, and in Buddhist teachings, it's actually talked about going to take refuge. Uh, for some of us, this might resonate. If we have, we, you know, this summer we've had a couple of different monastic retreats. We first had Sayadaw Upandita, Sayadaw Ulakana. For those of you who had the great blessing of sitting through both of those retreats, you may uh, be strongly resonant with taking refuge. But for many of us, um, it isn't maybe an immediate match, maybe not something we understand in the beginning, or that, you know, maybe that we see, maybe we've even sat this monastic retreats and feel like that's something that Buddhists do. Buddhists take refuge. And we may not be so ready to define ourselves as a Buddhist. And so it may feel you know, kind of a inside, or, you know, each night as we go to chant the refuges, maybe it's sort of, uh, maybe we don't even feel to do it, or maybe there's just some sense of standing back from it a bit. So tonight, I'd really like to explore this topic, because in my own experience, I've seen how important it is, how much support it gives to the unfolding of wisdom and compassion. And sometimes words, language, ideas can just block us from really understanding the profoundness of taking refuge and the ways in which we actually do it already in our lives. So the word refuge itself implies safety, protection, protection from fear, from danger. You know, it can be finding shelter in the midst of the turmoil of life. We probably all know, I'm sure we all know, I can't imagine, it's not like your babies, how, you know, what a time we live in in this world. That there is just so much going on, so much upheaval, violence, crime, it's not an easy time to be a human being. And if we don't know how to take refuge, life will become unbearable. 
life will be filled with pain. We'll find ourselves in states of despair. We'll find ourselves with an incredibly lost feeling. It may be that we experience the turbulence not just within the outer world, but we experience it in our own minds. It may be that in our lives we constantly find ourselves struggling with a state of fear, states of anger, desire. We feel overwhelmed by the forces within our own minds, whether it's emotional states, whether it's thoughts. We don't know how to be with it. We don't know how to find refuge. We don't know how to find shelter from it. And it's exhausting, tiring. Life can look very hopeless. And it may be that we don't go through life feeling completely hopeless. But there just may be times when despair is strong, when grief is strong, when sorrow is strong. How can we find refuge? How can we find shelter? How can we find peace in these moments? I think first it might be helpful to look at ways that we commonly or one way in particular that we commonly try to find refuge. And that is trying to find refuge in experience itself. In our lives, we may find refuge by trying to get the perfect job, have the perfect career, have the perfect relationship. We find refuge in you know, having a computer in our life that we think will help us to do things more effectively. Um, Many times in our life we might take refuge in food. You know, when there's a lot of emotion coming up, how often do we go and find comfort in food? Do we go and try to find some, you know, just some, some softness, some calmness, because it is so intense, because it can be so painful, because we can feel so vulnerable. In our practice, many times we might take refuge in states of calmness, tranquility, peacefulness. And, you know, it can give us momentary refuge. But the Buddha pointed towards something that is a stronger refuge. He pointed towards a refuge that is unconditioned, that isn't relying on circumstances to be a certain way. When we are relying on our refuge to be that which is within conditioned experience. You know, whether it be um, looking for the refuge in jobs, uh, careers, relationship, or whether it be looking for refuge in these mind states, this is all conditioned experience. 
And because it is conditioned experience, it means it is subject to impermanence. Being subject to impermanence, it means it's there in one moment, it's gone in the next. And for this reason, it is unreliable. It is not where we are going to find true refuge. And yet, in our lives, this is where we have a habit of looking. And we do it day after day, moment after moment. We do it in any moment where we identify with experience, as if this is where we can be safe. And just to know this is deeply conditioned, deeply habituated. We've been doing it, you know, from the time of being a small child. And we do it because we don't know any better. You know, it can be in our lives that we know of the truth of impermanence. We have some intellectual understanding of it. But it's really hard to live our lives from a place of truly understanding this. It's hard to live our lives in each moment from the place of this understanding. And so what happens is we lapse into these places where we find temporary refuge. And because these places are subject to impermanence, it means that even if for a period of time we find temporary refuge, at some point things will change. And when it changes, we often feel betrayed. We often move into states of fear, anxiety, because it wasn't lasting. But the Buddha came to see how even though there is this great vulnerability in life, that we experience simply as a result of having a body and a mind which is continually changing, even though there is this great vulnerability, there still is a place of true refuge. There still is a place that we can turn our minds towards where we are not constantly caught in fear, disappointment, betrayal, where we are not continually caught in suffering. For most of us, we have simply been looking in the wrong direction, been looking towards that which is unreliable. But the Buddha pointed towards that which is reliable, that which is trustworthy, that which naturally, by its very nature, brings safety, protection, He pointed towards the path of liberation. He pointed towards both the awakened mind, the liberated mind, 
and the path to realizing this liberation. In the Buddhist teachings, taking refuge is very important. It's a way of turning our minds over and over again to that which is reliable, trustworthy, is worthy of being a true refuge. And it's actually said that the refuges are the doorway or the entrance to the Buddhist teachings. And we know that in order to enter into a building, we need to walk through a doorway. Know that we can't just simply spontaneously be in the middle of a building. We have to walk through that door. And these refuges can be this very important doorway. These refuges can help to give us direction and also help to give us momentum to continue to walk this path of liberation. I want to just pause here for a moment and uh, because I realize that not everybody resonates with the word liberation, enlightenment, awakening. For some of us, this may seem like a lofty ideal, something that happens to somebody else, something that, you know, it may happen in some far distant lifetime. But right now, what we're really interested in is how to be with anxiety, how to be with fear, how to be with a body that hurts. And so, you know, to speak of liberation may right there take refuges into a realm that isn't meaningful. And I think that it is meaningful. I think that, you know, when we want to find refuge from our knee pain, from our back pain, from anxiety, from distress in our lives, we want to find refuge because we all have within us a homing instinct for happiness. There is something within us that is wise. There is something within us that knows that there is some possibility of freedom. And so, you know, if we're looking for refuge from our knee pain, we might not be holding it in our minds as being that totally, totally noble aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all living beings. And yet, within that, is the same seed, the same potential, the same piece of wisdom that knows that something is possible. And we actually find, you know, because I know in my own practice at times it really was as simple as wanting to find a moment of refuge from my back, which was just torqued and screaming. And, you know, I couldn't think about the suffering of the world in that moment. But could I find a way to be with that pain? 
And, you know, just by sitting here, we know of some sense of possibility. And as we practice, as we moment by moment bring mindfulness to our experience, we begin to experience the coolness that mindfulness brings. You know, I remember back to some of my first retreats and long periods of time where it was so tumultuous, it was so painful, and then suddenly there'd be a moment where in a moment of seeing, there was just the seeing. In a moment of hearing, there was just hearing. In a moment of breathing, there was just the breath and the knowing of this experience. And even for a moment, it was like, you know, just hitting a bell and there being a crystal clear sound. For that moment, there was refuge. Just through these simple moments, we begin to know of refuge. And this same sense of refuge can support us to complete realization within our own minds and hearts. So the Buddha laid out very clearly what it is that we can take refuge in. Different ways that we can give support to our minds to point our minds towards that which is trustworthy. And for me, taking refuge has become strengthened in the times when I am most distressed. You know, there are times when I might walk into this hall and have a profound sense of gratitude, but there are also times when my mind is screaming in agony and I remember to take refuge. I remember the triple gems, and this is what the, the, uh, the three refuges are called, um, I remember of the I remember to do this, and this gives support to my mind in difficult times. So the Buddha talked about the triple gems being taking refuge as we chant each day in that of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It's said of the triple gems that they are precious, beautiful, and indestructible. And this is something that we really come to see for ourselves through our practice. And when we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, this means that we are taking refuge in these qualities as being the path to liberation. In taking refuge, it's a way of making a conscious determination with regard to realizing our full capacity as being human beings. It's something that is active. It's not simply sitting and waiting for grace to descend upon us. You know, at times we need to actively turn our minds 
towards that which can be of refuge. So I'd like to begin just, well, I guess it's not quite the beginning anymore, but I'd like to speak now to each of these aspects of the Triple Gems, beginning with the Buddha. I think it's helpful on one level to begin with the Buddha, because here we have a historical man, you know, a man who lived over 2,500 years ago a man who was a human being. And I think this is really important to remember. The Buddha was a human being just like you and me. He was a human being that was subject to all that comes with having a body and a mind. He was subject, he realized that there was impermanence, that there was suffering in life that it was difficult to be a human being. But he also was a man that looked deeply into this suffering, looked deeply into the challenges of being a human being. And he realized for himself a way to be free of suffering a way to unbind the heart, a way to release the heart, a way to realize the full potential that is available to each and every one of us. For some of us, this can be very inspiring. You know, to know that if somebody else can do it, we can do it too. And the Buddha pointed towards the way, how to do it. He didn't just go off, become fully realized, awakened, and disappear. He gave skillful means. He taught the path to liberation. Another way of taking refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in Buddha nature, which is within each of us, which is what the Buddha recognized, which is what we all have the capacity to recognize. The difference between the Buddha and ourselves is that he had removed all ignorance. He could see clearly we often are confused, can't see clearly, are run by the habituated mind. But still within us, we all have this potential. And sometimes to remember this, we might do the stupidest things. We might be sitting and we get caught repeatedly in something over and over again. 
We might be really hard on ourselves. Can we, in these moments, remember that this is not the sum total of who we are? These are just temporary mind states arising and passing, thoughts that arise and pass away again. And this is not what we need identify ourselves with. That within us, there is this inherent Buddha nature. It's simply, in this moment, obscured. I know sometimes this remembering this helps me to soften, helps me to be kinder, more compassionate when I'm facing difficulty. Sometimes it's helpful if we meet challenging people, someone is irritating, disturbing us, to remember that they too have Buddha nature within. That in this moment, maybe their Buddha nature is obscured, but they, every being, is a Buddha in the making, simply needing to be realized. We learn to look deeper in people than actions that may be harmful or hurtful. We learn to be more open and available because of this. Taking refuge in the Buddha can be taking refuge simply in the knowing quality in the mind. The Buddha is that which knows, that which is wise, that which is noble. In times of difficulty, we can simply know our experience. We don't have to have a better experience. We can simply know this experience. It can be our wisest way of meeting the experience in this moment simply to know it. Another way of taking refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in all of the qualities that the Buddha mind embodies. This can be taking refuge in qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, wisdom, equanimity, This can seem more tangible to us at times. When we take refuge in it, it's it's a way of inviting these qualities into our lives. We, you know, in moments where we're angry, can work with turning towards loving-kindness. In a moment where we're confronted with suffering, we can turn towards compassion. In a moment where there's confusion, can we just rest in the knowing, the seeing of whatever it is that is arising in our experience in that moment? If we can rest in the seeing without needing to change, without needing to do anything, but just resting in the knowing, the seeing of the way things are, We're moving towards wisdom.
taking refuge in these qualities is an invitation to help these qualities ripen and blossom within our own hearts and minds. Sometimes in our practice, we might touch into a strong sense of sacredness. You know, even for brief periods of times, it might be we have, you know, like the subtle taste of liberation, uh, a subtle taste of the mind that is bound, not bound by clinging, not caught in desire. Sometimes it's like the scent of liberation. And we find, you know, it's these times in practice actually become the place out of which our practice flows. Our sense of possibility is strengthened. We begin to know for ourselves more deeply a sense of what is possible. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's a way of turning our minds towards the possibility of life, remembering that the Buddha himself was able to free his own mind, makes it possible for ourselves. We take refuge in this this awakened mind or this Buddha nature that's within all of us, and we take refuge in all of the qualities that the Buddha mind embodies wisdom, loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity. The second place of taking refuge is taking refuge in the Dhamma. So on one level, you know, just having spoken about taking refuge in the Buddha, Buddha nature, this sense of possibility within us. And yet, in our lives, we might find that, well, probably many of us, if not all of us, uh, maybe I'll speak for myself, that there still are moments of fear, anxiety. And so there becomes a path, you know, that we, we journey, that we have a sense of possibility, that we hear the teachings of the Buddha, and yet we haven't fully realized that. And so there is a journey that's involved. And the Dharma, the discovery of the Dharma, is this journey. There's different translations of the word Dharma as it refers to in the Triple Gems. Sometimes it's referred to as the teachings the teachings that the Buddha gave on the path to liberation. The Buddha encouraged us to really look and see for ourselves, to really follow the instructions of this path to liberation. 
um, to be, we, and we do this through looking into our own experience, through bringing mindfulness to what arises in our bodies and minds. And this becomes an exploration of the Dhamma. And the Dhamma is also said to be the truth, the lawfulness of life, the way things are. And so, as we put into practice what the Buddha pointed towards, as we look in our own experience by bringing mindfulness to our experience, as we investigate this body and mind, we come to investigate dhammas. We come to look into the arising and passing away of phenomena, of experience. And this is an investigation of the Dhamma. This is where we come to see for ourselves the lawfulness of life, that there is a lawfulness, that things are unfolding according to natural law. This becomes very important because we begin to see our lives are not a mistake. Our experience is not a mistake. It's simply unfolding according to natural laws. It means that we are a part of all things. We are not separate. As we explore these natural laws, we begin to see the rhythms, the movement of life, the unfolding of life. And it helps us to surrender, to have trust in this unfolding, to see for ourselves the law of karma, that our, what we do and say has consequences. And in the understanding of that, it helps us to be noble and upright, to act in ways that help to alleviate pain and suffering in the world. It really helps us to surrender to the way things are. And implicit, implicit in this is that we surrender our views and opinions. And our views and opinions are a place that keeps us continually caught in pain and suffering. Instead of being caught in our opinions and views, we learn to look towards the way things are. We learn to trust, have trust in this lawful unfolding. Sometimes Dhamma is defined as path. And this means that it is a combination of both wisdom and skillful means. It means that through wisdom, we work with seeing clearly, turning up over and over again in our experience to know things just as they are without adding anything to it, taking anything away from it, but just that 
cold-faced knowing of experience, without all of the overlays, without all of the wanting things to be a certain way, but just that sense of being able to drop into the way things really are. So this is the way we cultivate wisdom. Our wisdom is this aspect of clearly seeing, and then we need skillful means to do this. We, we need to learn ways, techniques, that help support clear seeing, that help support the unfolding of wisdom. And this is the path. <coughs> when we take refuge in the Dhamma, when we investigate the Dhamma, when we look closely at experience, we really begin to see how this investigation is in the here and now. To study the Dhamma doesn't mean that we need to read all of the Buddhist texts to have, you know, to go to a, you know, to study them in depth year after year after year. We can explore the Dhamma right here, right now, in our own experience just by waking up in this moment to our own experience. So when we take refuge in the Dhamma, we take refuge in our practice. And my guess is that every one of you here knows this. You know to some degree how you can take refuge in your practice. And we really find this at times in our life when tragedy occurs. You know, it could be world tragedy, that things happen at times on a huge scale where there is a lot of suffering in the world. What can we rely on then? Many of us find ourselves thrown back on our practice. It can also be in more simple times, more personal times, where there's pain and suffering. Maybe a doctor has just told you that you have a terminal disease or a really, uh, you know, uncomfortable, painful disease. Where will you turn to? What will you rely upon? We find it's our practice. We find we go back to the simplicity of being with just this moment, this breath, this experience. And even though within, you know, facing tragedy in the world, it won't be easy. It doesn't mean we're perfect at being with our experience. But we have a tool, a means, that can help us stay steadfast, that can help us to keep looking towards what is the ultimate refuge in life. It gives us support when we feel so vulnerable. It helps us to find the courageousness of heart and mind that can meet any experience that our life brings us. And this is why we practice so that we can find that deep peace, truth. We can not be thrown by 
the turbulence of life, all of the ups and downs. So by taking refuge in the Dhamma, we take refuge in our practice. And this leads us into wisdom, the understanding of the lawfulness of life. So the third refuge that the Buddha talked about is that of taking refuge in the the Sangha. And Sangha, as it's commonly spoken of in Buddhist teaching, refers to the ordained Sangha, the monastics, the monks and the nuns who uh, lead a life of simplicity, renunciation, who study and practice these teachings. But in looking at taking refuge in the Sangha, I think there is a broader meaning that helps us to really fully understand this sense of taking refuge. And that is that of taking refuge in noble Sangha. And so I'd like to speak about this, or noble Sangha or noble friendship. And I'd like to speak about this in a few different ways. The first is that there are many beings that have awakened. That, you know, were people just like you and me and may have struggled in their lives and became fully realized. It wasn't just the Buddha that did it. Many people have done it. If we look back through stories of disciples of the Buddha, we will hear of many, the time of the Buddha, it seemed like a great time to be in a body and to meet the Buddha. You know, stories of people spontaneously awakening in his presence or hearing one line of the teachings and awakening. And yet, if we look at the stories of these people, they often had struggles in their life. You know, many of them faced intense difficulties. And yet, they were able to awaken. So one aspect, and I think this is really um, an important aspect, is to remember many beings have walked this path before us. It can really give heart, really hearten us in times of difficulty. You know, one time I was in Burma going through a very, very difficult time. In doing long practice, as many of you are, there can be times, and it can be you know, anywhere from a whole day, a whole week, a whole month, several months, where it's not easy. We're challenged, deeply challenged. We're looking into dukkha, and it's not easy. I remember one of these times where, and I was feeling, you know, really moving into despair. And then I looked up, at a, uh, I guess it was an artist impression on the wall, because it couldn't have been an actual photograph, because it was of the Buddha. And behind the Buddha was a whole stream of monks walking. And they all were walking with their arms ball, alms ball. And they had their heads you know, just slightly downcast. And I remembered that there was these beings that had awakened, that had faced the same difficulties that I had, that had struggled in just the same ways that I was struggling, and that they had awakened. 
You know, and this really uplifted my mind. It brought again in this sense of possibility. It helped me to have this courageousness of heart. So this is one way of taking refuge in the Sangha. Another way is that of taking refuge in the ordained Sangha that I spoke about. These are all of the monks and the nuns since the time of the Buddha who have kept alive these teachings and this practice, who have dedicated their lives to this. And this lineage is like a stepladder that goes from the present moment back to the time of the Buddha. It's a direct link to the Buddha. This became very meaningful to me on one of my trips to Burma when I had temporarily ordained as a nun. I think one of my uh, strongest experiences of that time was to feel as if I was stepping into lineage. And, you know, this, it isn't that each of us is going to go off and ordain, even temporarily, as a monk or a nun. But I think it is important to recognize that there is this whole lineage that dates back from now to the time of the Buddha. And that lineage can be a direct link. One of the aspects that uh, really became heightened to me in reflecting on the importance of lineage also came about from uh, a piece of being in Burma. When I was in Burma, I was for a period of time in a nunnery in Sagain Hills. And there was an abbess of the nunnery whom to me was just a exemplary figure of what the potential of life is. You know, she may not have been fully realized, I don't know, but to me, she embodied so many of these qualities of wisdom, kindness. And, uh, it was, and it was wonderful for me as a woman seeing it in the form of a woman who just did so many acts of kindness just effortlessly in her life whom was responsive to life in a very wise way. I really aspired to be like her. And there was another woman that I met at the same time who uh, was actually the the aunt of um, the abbess. And she was an elderly nun. And she actually lived in a world that was confined to her room. She couldn't move about. Uh, but she, she, and she had been a nun since she was seven years old, and she was now in her 80s. She would often wake up and would not know if it was day or night. And yet she had such a lightness of being. These two women, to me, were lineage. They were, you know, I could feel that direct link back to the Buddha. And then one day, uh, this was after returning back to the West, it was a couple years later, I learned one evening that both of these women had passed away within two months of each other. When I heard that, it was once, first off, the impact of impermanence. No, with that came loss. 
But I remembered the sense of lineage. And what happened in that moment was a sense of responsibility came. Knowing that these were my teachers that I had looked to to keep the light of the Dhamma alive in the world, and they were gone. And now something of that responsibility was falling on my shoulders. That I needed to rise up to that. Because we are the lineage that will keep these teachings, this practice, the light of the Dhamma alive for future generations. This is the lineage that we enter into, we are a part of. The practice that you do here helps to keep this lineage alive. And this lineage extends beyond just the ordained Sangha. Because you know, even when I spoke of the noble Sangha, the Arya Sangha, all of those enlightened beings, it is not only the ordained Sangha that has become fully realized. Lay people, we are lay people. We can become fully realized. And this is the lineage that we can be a part of when we walk this path to liberation. So the Sangha, in a broader sense, is our spiritual friends, community of people who hold within themselves this noble intention. And this is what we take refuge in. It's not that we take refuge in ourselves as individuals. You know, and sometimes if we see, uh, you know, have a sense of taking refuge in the Sangha as individuals, and that individual sitting next to you is totally irritating, we might lose our trust. But what we can take refuge in is the intention that we all have in being here. A description that I once heard from, on, on the same trip to Burma when I was a nun, I heard it from an elderly nun, a description of Sangha that she gave, and it just spoke to me of what Sangha is. She said, it's the living stream through which the Dhamma comes to us. And just to remember, this is a living tradition. It's been passed on from heart to heart from mind to mind. It's like, you know, the light of a candle being passed from one flame to another. So taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, can we let this be an exploration in our own lives? It's not always so evident. It may feel foreign when we first hear of it. I know for me it did. That, you know, at first I had to look to what I really could resonate with in taking refuge. Mindfulness 
was the first stepping stone. Because it didn't have, you know, it seemed pretty simple. It's pretty tangible in those moments of mindfulness. But out of that, out of moments of mindfulness, I started to touch into the potential. I started to understand the lawfulness of life. I started to feel the support of the community of practitioners around me and how valuable that is. And it opened up my heart. And taking refuge can become a very devotional practice. And devotion is important in this journey because if we get caught in an analytical wisdom, a wisdom that is not embodied, it can become a very dry analytical approach. And true wisdom is balanced with compassion. True wisdom knows compassion. That's the movement of the heart. And compassion comes through connection. It comes through, you know, when we see clearly into the depths of suffering, there is this movement of heart to alleviate suffering. But this devotion arises when we take on the refuges, when we actively go to take refuge, and we begin to know something in our own experience of this sense of refuge. Naturally, we start to feel gratitude towards that which points the way. I wanted to share with you tonight um, something that really moved me in the way of how this devotion can bring juice, can bring um, just a sense of aliveness and vitality to the work that we're doing. And this, what I'm about to read, comes from a story about Ajahn Ma, Ajahn Man, who was a very famous Thai forest monk who did become realized. And this comes from his experience on the night of his enlightenment. It is after he experienced the heart that is unbound. It said, throughout the remainder of that night, Ajahn Man Uh, considered with a sense of dismay how pathetically ignorant he had been in the past, being dragged endlessly from one existence to another like a puppet. And he wept as he thought of how he finally came upon the pool of crystal clear, wondrous tasting water. He had reached that sparkling pool of pure Dhamma that that the Lord Buddha and his Arahant disciples encountered and then proclaimed to the world over 2,500 years ago. Having at long last encountered it in himself, he tirelessly paid heartfelt homage, prostrating himself over and over again to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Should people have seen him then, tears streaming down his face as he prostrated over and over again, surely they would have assumed that this monk was suffering immensely, shedding tears so profusely. They probably would have suspected him of beseeching the guardian spirits living in all directions to help ease his pain, or else of being on the verge of madness for his behavior was extremely unusual. 
In fact, he had just arrived at the truth of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. With utmost clarity, he who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha and thus abides in the presence of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Ajahn Man was simply engaged in the kind of conduct befitting someone who is overwhelmed by a sincere sense of gratitude. The taking of refuge often is that movement of the heart that expresses gratitude. So letting these refuges be that which supports the unfolding of wisdom and compassion. A place where we can turn our mind towards to find true refuge, to find in our lives that which is trustworthy, reliable. So let's just sit for a moment. Remembering that true refuge, ultimate refuge, is the awakened mind, the mind that is free of ignorance, the mind that knows, sees clearly, is wise. The purity of the mind, a purity that, was with, that is within this very mind. May all beings come to know true refuge. So we'll close tonight with the chanting of the sharing of blessings. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue 
my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.